Welcome to this episode of Print Run. My name is Eric Kane, and with me, as always, is Laura Zatz. Say hello, Laura. Hello, everyone. Today is June 19th, and we've got a pretty fun show for you today, a bunch of different little things. Um, But before we get into that, how about the standard stuff? Yes, June is the most exciting month. That means that we have, (laughs) don't laugh at that. Is Is it? I hate June. I don't know. Why do you hate June? I'm actually ready to say it. I'm actually ready to say it. June is my least favorite month of the year. Because what happens in June? It's not August? August is clearly the worst month. Why? Because it's hot as hell, and everybody is lazy, and nobody responds to anything, and it's just like, you like have all this time because nobody expects you to do anything, but you don't do anything with it because you're like dying in the humidity. Yeah. See, that's what I'm doing right now. So I'm very weak. <laughs> a very frail constitution. <laughs> all right. Uh, June, anyway. is the be- June is the best for a print run. Oh. Including wow. Eric Hayne. Okay, great, you guys? Great hashtag branding there. <laughs> <laughs> June is the best because that means that in, in addition to our weekly free episode, we are debuting this month Three special episodes. Uh, so two already out. Our query show dropped on June 8th. Mm. And for that, we stay with me here. <laughs> Critique real queries mm. sent to us by you. Um, so that one was really fun. We also have dropped last week writing by reading, which is it's the first episode of this show. So, Eric, tell tell yeah. everyone what this was. So. Um, like you just said, we just did our first one last week. It got um, it sounded like some people were excited about it. Um, they even were excited about it after they listened. <laughs> no, exactly, that's, that's <laughs> even better. Um, but basically, we took uh, we took the Red Wedding, which is a passage from uh, George R. R. Martin's A Storm of Swords, and kind of broke it down from a craft perspective. Had what I thought was a pretty fun and detailed conversation surrounding. Um, what makes that scene and that author um, really good and what's worth emulating from him. And so I would encourage anyone who's like writing anything right now to go listen to that and then tell us what you think. I mean, obviously with that paid stuff, um, you know, that's for you guys. And so if, you know, you want it tweaked at all, if you want it to be different, if you wish we were kind of approaching things uh, from a different way, we'd love to hear from you. So um, send us your thoughts, and we will be sure to take them into account. But uh, yeah, give us a try because I'm really excited about yeah. the uh, writing by reading. We're also we taking did. submissions for the next for next month's yeah. episode. Yeah. Um, so send those to us at printrunpodcast at gmail or you could just tweet at us. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, this week, this Thursday, June twenty second, the first pages show is dropping. So if you are a first pages subscriber, you will already have access to writing by reading and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, first pages is the same as the query show, but we do it with first pages instead of queries. <laughs> How novel! Yeah. Huh. Um, I didn't so, laugh yeah. at that. I didn't think it was very funny. You know what? <laughs> You're a spoil sport. Uh, well, maybe. Um, June hater. Uh, so, so send those to us again at printrunpodcast at gmail.com. Um, and we'll we'll hope to get your get your submission included. Yeah. So something else exciting happened this week. Uh-huh. Not actually this week, but finally, like people have recovered enough from BEA to like start thinking and talking about BEA right. other than just like salivating over their free books. We've we've gotten enough distance from it that it's now time to list all the ways it was problematic, like any good event. Correct. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> it, it uh, I was I was I discovered this week that Greenpeace uh-huh. had a table at Book Expo this year. Why did why why did Greenpeace have a table there? Well, uh, so 
this might surprise They're you, Eric. They're not a book company. They are not a book company. <laughs> they are not at all a book company. So this might surprise yeah. you. Yeah. But um, publishing isn't very green. I can't imagine why that's true between <laughs> all these print books, which all just sit in a warehouse, and all this paperwork that nothing needs to happen. Um, so yeah. here's the actual beef. Yeah. So a couple of years ago, Greenpeace kind of picked a fight with a company called Resolute Forest Products, specifically about their logging practices in Canada's boreal forest, Mm -hmm. you know, which is home to indigenous cultures, but is also um, really important for like the ozone or whatever. Um, The ozone or whatever. (laughs) You know, like in in biodiversity, that was the whatever part and the little squirrels. Sure. Okay. (laughs) Uh, <laughs> so in response to kind of this Greenpeace is lobbing all of all of these accusations at this company, who, by the way, supplies paper to all of the big five. And that's the connection. Well, we're getting there. Yeah. Yeah. So this this can this company responded by slapping Greenpeace with a defamation suit and like a RICO charge, which is like racketeering, basically, like an international racketeering charge. Mm -hmm. Um, And then so this year, Greenpeace decided we'll go to the customers. Mm -hmm. So they were appealing at BEA to the big five and smaller companies about not buying paper from this company because this is now turned in from a, hey, they're destroying the habitat of the cute little squirrels or whatever, uh-huh. all the way to they're trying to silence us as a organization that hmm. um, is like an advocacy organization. And so they yeah. were like, so so Greenpeace's response were to was to trans, translate this into a free speech speech issue. Oh, another free speech issue. I another, really, I really another, I'm not tired of those yet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so the idea is they actually asked, um, why is almost every major, major global book publisher buying paper from the very company that is using the same tactic to threaten free speech? Because publishers, of course, are champions of free speech. Well, and also because the idea that publishers would be like buying paper from a terrible source or something isn't good enough for publishers, right? Like we have no, to make it. <laughs> it's it's that we have to make it about like we have to own us content. with our own logic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so they were at Book Expo this yeah. year, um, and one thing I mean, and that's just like a little bit of like delicious like gossip, right? Um, and this this won't be resolved anytime soon, but it kind of led me to think: is like, is it reasonable to expect a publisher to be green? Well. So here's the thing. I mean, I think the answer is yes, first of all. I mean, I think that I think it's reasonable to expect any company to be green. And if they um, at this stage, like if you can't figure it out, then you need to change what you're doing. Frankly, I guess that's my personal view. But like um, publishers specifically, because so much of what they're doing is like outdated anyway. Like to me, (laughs) the thing with publishers not being green is that it's tied into so many other things that just don't quite make that much sense. Like what? Well, I don't know. Like to me, <laughs> they're print book publishers. You know, like and we live in an age where, you know, the print book isn't necessarily the best way to get information. And I'm not saying – Actually, it might be for some readers. Really? Yes. Okay. Well, so we'll let's get to that okay, in a second. Okay. Um, but <laughs> I guess my point is that like it's not a surprise to me that a – an industry that makes an outdated product, whatever you think about it, and you've heard me on this show, I love the print book uh, more than any other format for reading. But um, 
it's not a shock to me that this is an issue and that they're resistant to it. And I think of that and I think of all this unnecessary paperwork and how many manuscripts get – I don't know if you've ever been like in a publishing house, how many manuscripts just get printed for no reason and like how all this – like publishers are not very green. I guess you know that's not necessarily just true of publishing companies like I imagine like law firms are kind of the same way where it's just like paper, 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 paper all the, the FBI time. The FBI prints everything. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll be getting to them. Um, but like – I don't know. Yeah. No, I do think we should expect publishers to be green because I think that that's a reasonable ethical standard. And we're also printing all the books on being green. Yeah. 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 No, that's, that's yeah, that's true, too. <laughs> um, I don't know. Like to me, you know, the free speech issue is interesting. But, yeah, no, I do think that they should have to at least adapt, at least show some effort toward it. And it doesn't sound like there's there's much effort. So I did some looking yeah. into cuz I I my immediate inclination was well of course they can't be green. They're making books. Right. Right? And it's like well maybe what they can do is they could plant trees or they could use recycled paper or something. Um but I looked into it and I was actually really surprised about the lack of greenness that all of like the fun like paper saving technology is creating. Like what? So the e- so I looked into the production costs essentially f- uh-huh. as far as like environmental costs go uh-huh. um, in creating an e-reader versus creating an e-book. Okay, so or a that's, print book. Sorry. So that's the interesting thing because, um, yeah, the e-book is clearly what you would think of as the traditional alternative to this stuff. Oh, absolutely. So an e-reader to make, and this is kind of an average, takes a hundred kilowatt hours. To be produced, and it creates 65 pounds of carbon dioxide. Mm. So 165, right? A print book takes two kilowatt hours and produces 7.5 pounds of carbon dioxide. Hmm. So it's many, many times less. Yeah. So I, you know, and I also there are there are various studies about you know kind of like taking account into you know, the power it takes to read the books and the time and the who's a what's it or whatever. Sure. Um, it takes anywhere, depending on the study you read, it takes anywhere from 22 to 50 ebooks that you read yeah. to offset the carbon footprint of having and using an e-reader. Mm-hmm. So if you read under 22 books a year, you should definitely be buying print books. Well, if you... Well, or so if is you're that... going to the library or whatever. Yeah. I feel to me that kind of sounds like the argument that people were making when like the Prius first came out and they were like, (laughs) well, actually making the Prius does all this stuff in the factory and it's really environmentally terrible. And that's why I'm going to keep driving my driving my H2 all around town because you're the jerk, not me. And it's like, (laughs) you know, maybe maybe it's a little more simple. But if you consider (laughs) if you consider that the average American reads like five books a year or even less than that. You know, like that's – I mean it's not unreasonable, you know. Oh, no, to... it's not at all. But you would also have the e-reader for more than one year. Like – Not necessarily. Why? Or do they update I mean, them that fast? Yes. How now, fast is the Kindle Now update? the fancy Kindle Is the Kindle thing. as infuriating as like the iPhone? Like do I have to buy a new Kindle every year if I'm no, into that? No, you don't. But like here's the thing now. The yeah. Kindles now aren't just the paper whites. Like they – can you know you have like the Kindle Fire, which is basically a tablet, yeah. and like that uses yeah. a lot of you know you can go on the internet and you can do all sorts yeah. of stuff, and that uses a lot more power. But it's like thirty bucks. Hmm. I know. Anyway, but all of this is to say, I, you know, I I feel like this is like ultimately, unless you read like a ridiculous number of books, or you just buy a ridiculous number of books, 
no yeah. matter what. Like, I feel like it's going to be pretty much a wash, except for, like, if you buy from a publisher that, you know, plants trees or you buy from a, a publisher <laughs> who who is, like, looking into new printing technology because, okay, so most books are printed. We're not going to get too deep here because it's really boring. But most books are printed on offset printing machines, which uh -huh. are basically, like, super, super long. They can be, like, the length of a, like, yeah. half of a ball field. Yeah. And to even get those up and running, they waste thousands and thousands and thousands of sheets of paper. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I wonder if we could just be better at that. <laughs> well, <laughs> you no, know? printing is definitely like, a problem. Like, I mean, we'll have to have, you know, who talks a lot about that is Allison and I have had a lot of conversations about like just how inefficient and stupid printing in like how there's only like printers in certain like countries. You got to mail it out to you know, some overseas place just to get it sent back to you. I mean, it's all very strange and inefficient. And, like, that's definitely um, an arena that publishers could improve upon, just even just for their own businesses. Like, forget, like, trying this moral argument for being green or whatever, but, like, that would just make sense for yeah. their own, like, you know, revenue and everything. But like, like, hey, if we're printing 5,000 books, maybe I shouldn't need to buy paper for 15,000. But Yeah, exactly. But, like, so to me, I just get a little tired of – publishers thinking that they get some exemption for things be just because they are quote unquote making like art or something like to me book publishers are constantly trying to push off like the responsibility for being a good industry on everybody else you know it's like all the consumer has to you know make sure you go buy at a local bookstore you know make sure that you buy this kind of book make sure that you support your authors and you know do all this stuff and it's like all that is good but where at what point is the publisher itself, you know, the company responsible for behaving in a manner that is both good for itself and the industry and people and the environment, you know, like, I don't know, you, I feel like publishers are constantly <laughs> crying about, you know, the conditions imposed on them. Like even the Amazon episode we did the other day, you know, like I don't like Amazon very much either, but that doesn't mean that I would look at them and say, um, you know, publishers are definitely like the good guys here and they haven't made any mistakes and, um, you know, they should be given all these rights that, you know, other businesses and other industries don't get. Like to me, um, publishers just need to get their act together with some of this stuff. <laughs> they and need to like maybe invest in technology. That's what I mean. That's what am I mean. Like, am I be being crazy Like here? they're the ones who are outdated to the point of near extinction. Like they don't get to be the ones that has have the whole rest of the world prop them up. Like if they – like the answer to should publishers be green and should publishers do things that don't like – crush the environment for their own, you know, small, you know, cause. It's like, yeah, they should. And I don't know. So I guess I always get a little suspicious whenever um, big, giant publishing companies, and these are big, giant publishing companies. Like oftentimes we talk about um, these places, though they're like, and a lot of them are, but like the ones we're talking about here, the big five are like these big, you know, giant. International Right, exactly. Yeah. That are, you know, they're not the little guy in, by any stretch of the imagination. And they should be treated with the same scrutiny and, um, you know, suspicion that you would treat any giant company, you know? And so I don't know. I'm on, I'm definitely on team. Yes, they need to be green. And if they haven't figured it out yet, they need to figure it out. Um, Heck yeah, recycled acid free paper stock. <laughs> I'm also on team. Like for this, I'm also, I can't believe that it's a wash for buying an e reader versus print books. I feel like if I, um, I guess it depends how many times you have to buy an e reader, but. Yeah, I mean, I have an e-reader, yeah. and it's it's basically obsolete at this point. Like, the, te the technology has moved so fast that it, like, doesn't really work. Do you still put books on it? 
new. You do that on like how do you read digitally on like a tablet now? Like I an iPad? I read digitally by listening to audiobooks from my local library on my phone. So you listen to audiobooks, good. That's Yeah. Yeah, but when I read, <laughs> when I read, well, I, I mean, the answer is I don't read ebooks because I read on my tablet for yeah. work and so when I yeah. read I read in print, right? right? But I, you know, how many print books do I read a year? Yeah. Like not that many. Hmm. So, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I think it's you as an individual reader have to figure out what is the best choice for you as far as your consumption. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's not it's it's just what I meant by by it's a wash is like it's not an easy answer. You can't just say like ebooks are better. Well, I don't like the idea yeah. that there's like a choice here that's placed on the consumer when it's the like I don't know, like whether I buy ebook or print doesn't affect anything. You know, like that's not going to change anything. What's going to change something is publishers adopting its policies. Like that's far more substantial and far different. And it's like, you know, big companies love to put the, you know, morality or ethics on the, you know, individual consumer as a means of passing it off to themselves. And I don't, I don't know. I think the publishers need to get their act together. If this is, if this is a thing that is doing the harm that, you know, Greenpeace is saying that it does, I think that that warrants listening to. And you see some of these statements, you know, we're working from an article, you know, there's a release on this from, um, you know, Publishers Weekly. Um, let me find the um, Simon and Schuster quote here. Let's just make sure we get the strongly worded environmental message here from the SNS. The strongly worded message. Yeah, here message. we go. Each party in the dispute has made claims, counterclaims, and arguments in support of its positions about complicated issues that, as publishers, we have little ability to judge or verify. We do, however, recognize the urgency of current environmental issues, the unalloyed right to free and responsible free speech, in ad- to free and responsible free speech, so free free speech, um, in advocating for environmental and other causes and the right to defend one's reputation. So basically we've got here, we're going to lawyer up. So like, they said that we're consumers, <laughs> but we have no way to be informed about or understand where our product is coming from. Yeah, I don't know. So like, I don't know about that. It's just like I don't see a great – I don't see like this great moral line that publishers are drawing here. But anyway. Anyway. Um. <laughs> that's That's been our little foray into – environmentalist publishers well, I, I mean I it's think, something it's something that i want to keep paying attention to definitely. well me too and the reason um i just think like the reason it, this is interesting to me um is the environmental thing but it's also interesting because it's just one more way in which publishers are coming off as outdated you know and it's like it's one more way where they're trying to pretend they're not outdated by making all these kind of wishy-washy claims whether it's um you know about this or about you know amazon or about um, you know, like the kind of, you know, the free, you know, the weak free speech stuff when it comes to like publishing people like Milo or like Ann Coulter, or, like, the, you know, like it's just co- we're constantly getting these nothing statements from these companies. And I don't know, like at some point you've only got yourself to blame when things kind of fall apart. But <laughs> should we move to our next thing? Tell the people what it is. (laughs) So we're debuting a new segment that I am really, really excited for. And it's called The Fiction Writer Under FBI Investigation of the Week. (laughs) We didn't workshop that title before we did this show. No, I like like, like that because it's it's like just clunky enough to be absurd. But... (laughs) This is, we'll workshop so it. So what I think it was a lit hub that like did a thing where they like sent out some small piece about like outlining James Baldwin had like this giant file with the FBI. And you and I were kind of talking about it. We were it was like, you know, like eighteen hundred pages or something that his, you know, file with um, you know, the feds 
had gotten up to, and you and I were like, oh, I wonder, you know, I wonder if other authors have been, you know, under federal investigation, and if it, any of it was, you know, completely ridiculous. And of course, the answer is yes, all of them, always, <laughs> <laughs> and constantly. And so we figured we should just start doing. We should just start Little doing a segment snapshots. where we talk about our favorite authors and their FBI files because. Um, what what's better than fiction versus How else feds, are we right? going to use the Freedom of Information Act? <laughs> exactly. I ask you. Okay, so who is it this week, Eric? Okay, so this week um, is someone who should be, you know, he is often quoted when it's time to um, wail against censorship and things like that, and that's our good friend Ray Bradbury. <laughs> uh, who, I'm so excited know, for yeah, this. Yeah. So in the 1950s, um, the FBI decided to investigate Ray Bradbury, who— well, because he was two things, and this is true of a lot of people of this era, is he was a science fiction writer, and he was um, he was kind of a liberal thinker. What? Right? And so that's crazy. <laughs> and so what that basically meant um, is that he was definitely a communist trying to um, subvert America. Of course he was. And so, <laughs> um, yeah, no, they. So basically, Bradbury, you know, got investigated for basically trying to sap the will of the American people through the art of science fiction. <laughs> because that was the argument at the time, right? Same. That, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and this is interesting. And we're, we've got something coming in the works in a few weeks that's going to play off this that I'm really excited about. But, um, you know, people at the time, at least the, the feds, you know, as they were terrified of communism in Russia and all these things um, – were they were really certain that the way communism was going to take hold here in the U.S. was through the ideas purported in science fiction was going to be kind of painting these dystopias that got people to quit viewing the current mode of um, economics. Yeah, I guess you know, like capitalism. Basically, they um, if we paint enough of a hellscape in these fictions, people will think, well, hey, maybe we shouldn't have capitalism. Um, and so. They, we got these ridiculous FBI reports, and I want to read part of it because we've got the scans right here from, like, the 1950s. From the actual FBI. Yeah, yeah from, the, from the documents. Um, and so let's see. Here we go. Um, so this is from, yeah, the 1950s. Informant advised that individuals such as Ray Bradbury are in a position to spread poison concerning political institutions in general and American institutions in particular. He noted that individuals such as Bradbury have reached a large audience through their writings, which are generally published in paperbacked volumes in large quantities. Informant stated that the general aim of these science fiction writers is to frighten the people into a state of paralysis or psychological incompetence bordering on hysteria, which would make it very possible to conduct a third world war in which the American people would seriously believe um, could not be won since their morale had been seriously destroyed. So basically, <laughs> they're mad at him because he's got success with paperbacks. Yeah, they were mad. Yeah, they were mad that his paperback sales were good. So they. I wonder to... how his, how how they felt about his hardcovers. <laughs> yeah, um, so like basically, um, it's just I think there's something interesting there, and we're gonna we're gonna kind of explore this as a theme as we keep doing this segment moving on. But like, um, the Feds have a really weird relationship with fiction, you know. And with and ideas. With ideas and how those ideas get portrayed and wh- which of them take root and which of them get success. Um, and one thing that's really interesting with Bradbury, and it's in the FBI file, um, is that he, um, you know, Fahrenheit 451, um, it had some different title. What was it? Um, I'm trying to remember. I don't know. It has fire in it. I don't, the Fahrenheit 451 had a different title when it was first published, but that's kind of what's listed here. And... Um, 
the book was banned in Russia because Russia thought it was like subversive to their government. Too because American? Of, because of because of course it was because it was about you know it was an argument against censorship. Like Russia got the <laughs> satire, you know, <laughs> and Russia which, knew, which is a funny thing to be true about an author that you are claiming to be like a Rusky. You know what I mean? <laughs> like. They it's, probably thought that they were doing that to cover him up, yeah, like so to it, to like cover up his his connections. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's totally crazy to me that um, you know America would have a strange and weird obsession with with Russians. Um, I can't imagine anyone anyone feeling like that anymore. I think every uh, time we do this segment, <laughs> I'm gonna want a Pelmeni. I know, um, but yeah, no. So like, there's something interesting there. I think to be said about the power of like really good like speculative fiction. The way it can just alarm people and kind of take hold, like to the point that um, people will have like government reports about you if it goes well enough, um, which I think is pretty a pretty high compliment. Like one of the things we're going to find is that most of these writers we cover in this segment are uh, pretty successful. Um, Damn, which is which is good. But um, so Ray Bradbury is this week's um, FBR fiction. Let's get, should we get it right? I- fiction writer under in FBI investigation. Of the week. <laughs> We're not changing it. That's uh. what it is. <laughs> That's what it is. Uh, <laughs> anyway. Fine. Um, but it, yeah, so – but that's going to be, I mean, one reason I'm excited about this segment, as are you, is we're going to do something in a few weeks. I think that's going to be really cool. Um, so, you know, stay tuned for that. So I had an interesting something happen this week. Mm-hmm. So I've, I've maybe talked about this book on the show a little bit, but yeah. I have a I have a book that's forthcoming with yeah. Akashic Books. Uh-huh. Um, it is just about to go to print, so mm-hmm. we are kind of in between the printing of the arcs, printing of the galley stage, yeah. and now like that frantic endorsement gathering mm-hmm. before we go to press because yeah. we want it to go to press with all sorts of shiny stuff on it. So here's. So, so the book that I'm talking about specifically um, is a book by an author, a debut author called River Solomon, mm-hmm. and this book is An Unkindness of Ghosts, and it's this beautiful, like, futuristic science fiction, like, unapologetically black, queer, like, beautiful piece of – of course I like it. definitely getting an FBI file. Definitely getting an FBI <laughs> file. Also, they live in England, oh. so, like, doubly FBI. Yeah. Yeah. So – foreign agent definitely foreign agent (laughs) um (laughs) so one thing that i noticed is that this particular arc which i have a copy of Mm -hmm. says on the the back that this author is a worthy successor to octavia butler Mm -hmm. who is a classic science fiction author right and then on the inside the little note from the publisher says that it is kind of like similar in tone and style that like like tony morrison would have liked this book sure right so here we have Octavia Butler and Toni Morrison. So this is let's just make sure we get this across here. This is a very literary book. It's extremely or at least, literary. Or at least with the comments and the pitching so far, we've it's gotten this kind of like yeah, yep, cool. So here is the blurb that came through this week. Uh-huh. And to be clear, I'm thrilled about this blurb, <laughs> but it's weird as hell. Yeah. Lee Child blurb this book. <laughs> Lee Child uh, is is the thriller writer who wrote the Jack Reacher yeah. series, yeah. which if you've never read the books, uh, I think there was a not super successful uh, action movie that Tom, Tom Cruise, Cruise was in it. Yeah, was in the Jack Reacher movie. Um, so the creator of Tom Cruise 
is character. I wanted I wanted to stick with Tom Cruise. The creative but Tom Cruise. I don't think I want to give anybody Please, Mr. that. Mr. Cruise is my father's name. <laughs> <laughs> Blurb this book, and I, you know, I was left thinking, and I was like, "This is amazing! I'm so excited about this." Yeah. But this doesn't make any sense. Right. And it got me thinking about the nature of blurbs. Well, so, yeah. No, I mean, I think there – so let me ask you this. Do you believe that this blurb is going to be helpful in selling the book? No. No. I See, don't I think, think so. yes. I mean, maybe. I don't know. Like, wh- okay, so first we need to talk about what does a, an endorsement, what does, a, what does a blurb from another author – Yeah. What is that for? What does it do? Okay. <laughs> So this is kind of a – it's kind of a tricky thing, What is the hope? Right. So a blurb, um, just for anyone who doesn't quite know what we're talking about, we're talking about um, an author or I guess some – no, I think it is – it's usually an individual who ends up commenting on a book before publication, right? Like they say, this is the greatest book ever. You should definitely – you know, you definitely go buy it. And what publishers end up doing – with those little comments and quotes is they plaster them everywhere, right? Like they tweet them out. They stick them on the back jacket of it's the heart. It's proof that, hey, somebody exactly. with good taste like, likes it's this an en- book. It's an endorsement, right? Like it's what you use um, in your press releases. It basically goes up anywhere. You know, you see them on Amazon. It's just like a little bit of promotional material, to, like you're saying, to prove that someone has read it and liked it. And hopefully it's someone whose opinion you trust. Um, you do it to hopefully um, – at least the thinking goes – to drive sales, right? Because to convince people who read the yes. book of the blurber right. to buy the blurby. Right. Which is what makes this um and there's and there's more to it here in a second, but um which is what makes the uh Lee Child blurb so interesting. And I'd be interested to know what he actually said in the blurb, but like do you think many of uh Jack Reacher fans are gonna be purchasing this one or looking at this one? Full disclosure, I've never read a Jack Reacher novel. Sure. And I've never seen the movie. But I went to a movie at the same time that they yeah. were doing an early viewing yeah. of the Jack Reacher movie. So I feel like I've seen it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Excellent. And no. Yeah. I mean, like, I don't know. I'm just, okay. So so to be frank, yeah. the books might be totally different. Uh-huh. But... I'm kind of thinking of like who watches Tom Cruise action movies. Yeah. And the person who watches Tom Cruise action movies probably don't want to read this super literary black science fiction novel. Sure. You might be selling them a little short in general. I mean, that's a generalization, but I get what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it wouldn't be okay. Not saying that they don't want to read it, but it would be a harder sell. The point is perhaps. that it's pretty disparate audiences, yeah. probably in terms of thinking. Um, so, <laughs> I mean, even just going from thriller, the genre, to yeah. literary science fiction, the genre yeah. is a jump. Yes, it is. Like those are in different parts of the bookstore. So, do you have to even get those people to that part yeah. of the bookstore? Well, is that's what I'm saying. Well, so getting people to different parts of the bookstore, I think, in a way, ties into what I think the actual use of a blurb is. And it's very rarely, I think, about um, who does them or, you know, how good the words actually are in them or whatever. They're meant to me – well, they're meant for a lot of kind of cynical things, but they're also meant to generate word of mouth, right? There's something – there's something to talk about. I mean, I guess we're you talking know? about like, why Lee Child blurred this book. It's news. Like, yeah. it's news. It's it's buzz. It's something you can, you know, it's a new thing you can post. It's a new thing you can put on the, you know, on the back cover. It's a new thing you can talk about. It's something you can give your sales associates to go and talk to their um, accounts with. You know, it's 
it's a reason for people to reconnect about stuff. It's something new a publicist can work with. I mean, the idea is to me what's great about a blurb is less the blurb itself and simply the fact that it exists as news to mm. get people talking more. Like because, you know, one thing um, that sells books, and this is a very common bit of wisdom, but the thing that sells books, the most, especially fiction, is word of mouth. Right. Like the thing that sells a book is everybody talking about the book. It's why consumer reviews are so helpful. It's why Goodreads is so helpful. It's why, um, you know, it's that's how it goes. It's people recommending books to you. It's why that, Goodreads exists. Exactly. Yeah. Like it's um, I don't know. So it's one more reason to check in. Um, I happen to think that blurbs are um, they have a whole separate other purpose, which is a little thing called author management. <laughs> I don't even know. Okay, tell me about that. I don't even know um, what you, where you're going. Which is that, you know, the publishing process, the publishing process can be pretty brutal, right? Like if you're a fiction writer, like picture it for a second. And those who are can probably empathize. You spend all those years writing your book, right? Like you do all those things. You get your agent, like which is a huge victory. You're so excited you got your agent. Then you sit forever. And then your agent finally sells your book. And then you sit some more while publication waits to happen. And then you have to do all those things. You have to, you know, do go through the copy edits, go through the proofs, you know, do all this stuff. And, like, it can wear you out. And suddenly you're well removed from the initial joy of having your book published. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, you know, you start to get worried about publication. And they're starting to tell you all the different things you're going to have to do after publication. And you know, maybe, you know, you're not quite sure they're going to work. Maybe you don't want to be like on the radio or doing tour, you know, like there's a bunch of anxiety that could maybe pop up, at least from my, in my experience working with like, especially like first time authors going through some of this stuff. Cause it's a long, arduous process. And one thing that the blurb does is it gives you a little bit of a morale boost, you know, like it's mm. a, it's a sign like getting a blurb is a sign of life. You know, it's like, hey, Here's a reminder here's that a people, real who that people are excited about your book. You know, here's a reminder that we are at the publisher are excited about your book. At least speaking from someone who has done a lot of blurb soliciting, um, you know, in-house as an editor, like it's often like the best, th- like for me, what, the thing I was most excited about with getting blurbs was just like having that happy conversation for a second with an author who's probably very justifiably cranky with the rest of the process at that point. You know, and so it's almost like it has less of a functional like use. Like it's not like, hey, if you get this blurb, suddenly your book is going to do this, this, this and this. And um, it's more just like, hey, this this is just like a little reminder that everybody can feel good about this again. And maybe it's a little bit more energy to put you back in. It's a thing that can get the author back in, you know, doing social media stuff some more. And I'm going to disagree with you a little bit. I'm what? Um, so while I, I, I think that. What you just said is likely entirely and totally true. Mm-hmm. But in my experience, um, typically when you sign a contract, the first thing that happens is that you get introduced to your publicity team yeah. and they send you this huge packet of stuff. Yeah. Like this big old questionnaire where it's like, yeah. tell me who you are, tell me where you've lived, tell me everybody you've ever met, tell me all of the writers you even like talk to a little bit on Twitter, like all of this stuff, right? right. Yep, it's this author's questionnaire. And and then when you get a little bit farther down the process, when there are ARCs available. What's an ARC? The the advanced reader copy. Yeah, so the the galley, the, you know, this this advanced copy of the book that's used specifically to get blurbs and create buzz, right? So... This author's questionnaire is kind of thrown back at you when then they go, okay, 
it's time to get a blurb. Time to deliver and on all the stuff you said you were going to exactly. get. Exactly. <laughs> and that that for a lot of my authors is it's like it's really nerve-wracking. Well, that's what I'm saying, yeah. Because, well, they have to go out and get those blurbs, yeah. too. It's not even, like, that kind of, like, calm, like, ah, of, like, receiving the blurb. It actually, like, adds a lot of pressure. Well, that's the thing with them, right, is that it often, I think that's kind of a, um, maybe a misconception, too, is a lot of that work falls to the author. Oh, definitely. Like, blurbs don't just come in from the publisher. I mean, they do sometimes. I mean, that would but, be nice. But, like, a lot of the time, it's who do you know? Who can you talk to personally? How can you just go get us this that we can then use, you know? So, no, I totally agree with what help you're saying. Me, help, you. yeah. <laughs> help me. Help you. Help me. Yeah. Yeah. Except- so, like, I can't even count the number of emails where it's, like, is this how I ask for a blurb? How do I do this? And, right. you know, a lot of the editors that we work with yeah. do the same thing, too, because it goes from... You've you've crossed all of these hurdles. You know, you've yeah. done the agent thing, you've gotten the book deal, you've you've gone through editing, you've got all you've hit all of these markers where people say, You are good enough. Yeah. And then you right. have to go to the public and more. ask, Am I good enough? Exactly. And it was something that you're not necessarily expecting. Or even when you know it's coming, you don't quite realize how crazy it is until you have to do it. But it's such I think that's totally spot on. And it's such a strange hurdle, right? Because it's not as though like from a purely functional sense, right? What have you accomplished getting a blurb? I would say not that much. <laughs> like in terms of the actual like prospects of the book, like all that's really happened is like another layer of author anxiety has been introduced into the equation that they then have to clear just to get back to where they were but anyway. But it feels really good and then when it they feels, get it. And then it feels really good and maybe it, you know, can help, you know, a certain number of people pick up the, the book and everything. But um, I don't know. Like to me, it's... I'm not necessarily so sure how useful the blurbs themselves are. Yeah. Like, do you care what the blurb says? Because okay. I don't think people do. I think people care who it's from. Like, I don't think anyone really cares that much about what the thing actually says. Okay, so here's literally the only time yeah. that I look at a blurb. Yeah. Is when I am at the bookstore and I am opening up or, like, I am browsing on, you know, Overdrive or whatever. And I open up the the flap and I'm reading about the book and whenever the flap copy is just like insufferable, <laughs> whenever it's just like this magnificent yeah. tour de force of, yeah, of yeah, beauty and and like themes of this and this and this. I'm like, I don't fucking care what the themes are. Yeah. Just tell me what the book is. Mm-hmm. When I'm missing that, then I turn to the endorsements because a lot of times the endorsements will just tell me this is a really good vampire book and i'm like oh yay (laughs) (laughs) that's what i wanted i don't want a tour de force i want a fucking vampire book right yeah so um yeah so that's that's really the only time that i read blurbs and so here's here's one of the reasons that i don't necessarily care who blurbs Mm. and um it's what i kind of think of in my brain as like blurb sluts like people <laughs> <My>. like <laughs> that's a term yeah i couldn't think of a better one um but so so you have to consider that blurbs do a couple of things right yeah. we've talked about already what they do for the book that is being blurbed but what they also do for the blurber the person who is blurbing ugh, um is that it gives them a place to have their name in their book title 
Yeah. Like it puts them on a different front cover. And so there's kind of this power exchange here where it's like, mm-hmm. I am lending you my credibility, but you are lending me visibility. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there, and I'm never quite sure how real it is because there's this whole big thing where like, like author friends blurb each other as a favor. There are also like the blurb sluts who just like think it's really fun and wonderful to blurb books. So they'll have written like three books and we'll blurb like a hundred, yeah. literally a hundred. Yeah. Um, you Gare know, the people like that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Tell, tell the people about, well, he just, he blurbs everything. He loves blurbing. And, and he, and he nobody said... knows what he writes <laughs> except for that. He blurbs. Oh, he writes very good novels. Um, but, um, yeah, no, he loves to do it. What's his quote here? We've got this. We've got this article pulled up. Gary Steingart here, who is the blurb king. Um, let's see. Here we go. Um, I'd like to be a blurber of the whole world, says Steingart, author of the heralded and, and well-blurbed books, The Russian Debutante's Handbook, Absurdistan, and Super Sad True Love Story. I would like to blurb hairstyles or gas ranges. <laughs> Okay. He also um, he's also even blurbed, blurbed his own blurbs. He says, "I hate saying this word, by the way. This is, I know, me this too. is enraging me as we go along." Um, Gary, he he has written of himself. Gary Steingart's blurbs are touching, funny, and true. This is a blurber to watch. <laughs> so, so I enjoy. I enjoy, I, I enjoy reading Gary Steingart's uh, blurbs. Yeah. Well, but, they're everywhere. But I don't necessarily want, like, if I see his blurb, I'm not going to be like, oh, good. You know, yeah. like, I must read this book because, of course, he hasn't read of them. Well, it also doesn't, it doesn't, I mean, he's here telling you that his it doesn't mean that much. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm trying to think of um, the funniest blurb I've ever seen. The one I'll never forget, like, my favorite blurb of all time that just makes me laugh every time I think about it is the one on the cover of the paperback of Everything is Illuminated. By Jonathan Safran Foer. I'm listening. Um, it, the blurb is from Joyce Carol Oates. And it says, <laughs> I remember in high school thinking that this was just the dumbest phrase in the history of the world. She calls it a zestfully imagined novel of wonders. <laughs> and I, I, <laughs> Joyce. I, was like, I was like, man. Joyce, I'm so disappointed. And you know what? It was. <laughs> it was zesty? I love that book. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but it was so zesty. Do you, so do um, do you have any good blurb solicitation stories? Like, how's that gone for you? Um, I don't know. Like, it's, you know, it's it's one of those things where it's kind of political because, like, I get some of my authors who, like, want to ask another one of my author to, like, blurb right. the book. But right. I need to make sure that it doesn't come across as, like, super insular as in, like, I need it to come across that we, like, know more people than just, like, me. Well, sure. Um, no, I don't necessarily have any good stories, but you've talked about asking <laughs> Richard Dawkins yeah, so, to blur Well, that books. was the thing with, um, yeah, back at Oxford, um, the university press, when I was a, an editorial assistant there, we had to um, do a bunch of soliciting, and, um, you know, these are scientists, so they all wanted uh, Richard Dawkins' his blurb, and he was an... Um, way back in the day before he got super famous, he was an OUP author. His first, uh, The Selfish Gene, is an Oxford book. And so he, every now and then, would bite on something from Oxford. So I remember I um, emailed him and didn't hear anything back. And then like a month later, I just got like a, a comment like from him. <laughs> like, um, So we, we did email back and forth, but he had, he had nothing to say to little old me. Mm-hmm. Um, but he did give us a nice um, thing for the book. Um, I remember my other big... Um, blurb story isn't even mine I remember being at Overlook and it was like my first couple weeks there and I'm like you know 
pretty nervous and like trying to prove myself, right? And the other editor there is is Allison, who we've interviewed on this show before, right? And she's probably Allison Rudolph, yeah. Yeah, she's probably listening to this and will laugh along, I hope. Uh, <laughs> if not, sorry, Allison. Um, but she got these two, like she had this book, this nonfiction book, and um, I remember the first two weeks, she got two blurbs for it, like right away. And I was like, this is just the standard. She got one from Jane Goodall and another from Temple Grandin. And what? I was like, what in the world? I was the most inferior I've ever felt in my job in my entire life. <laughs> I was like sitting there like like trying to like figure out like how to get on to like the online. Did she like dress like a monkey or something? I don't something? know what she did. But she got these she got these two great comments for this book. And it was – and it's fun. And actually, you know, it makes me think of – one more really great use of, um, you know, these kind of endorsements. I'm done saying blurb. I'm saying endorsements from now on. If Good I don't for know. you. Uh, <laughs> blurb. Is that um, they generate enthusiasm in-house. Like one thing that you have to do um, in publishing is make sure that the people in the house itself actually like the book, which sounds crazy, I know, but it's it's really true. Like you have to make something – like if you want the publicist to work hard on it, if you want the marketers to work hard, if you want everyone to work together on it and kind of like be motivated to really do something about this book and break it out – um, everybody has to kind of like it and feel excited about it, right? So does that and mean so, that your brand of enthusiasm is just like impotent anger and like feeling inferior? Jesus. Wow. Because of the oh. because of the Jane Goodall thing. Oh, just, that was your response. You mean like in general? <laughs> <laughs> because yes. <laughs> um, we lost yeah. that third of the conversation, but it made sense in my head. Yeah, no, no. Yeah. I mean, it, it makes sense. It, it, it makes sense in my head. <laughs> But uh, no, but I think it's true because all of a sudden, you know, you're ha- you have these kind of intercompany threads where it's like everyone's kind of, oh, man, like, you know, this person said it was good. Let's make sure we get that out to everybody. And it's sort of it's sort of a team building exercise almost, too, uh, which can be really helpful. That's lovely. Um, while I'm like over there stewing in my my brand of enthusiasm, this <laughs> impotent anger, um, which is true. Um, um, that's when I that's when I log on. When you love something, <laughs> you get really angry about it. I do know that for oh, a that fact. That is true. Yeah. Whenever you read a book that you really love, you yeah. want to become a welder and you clean your yeah, fridge. Yeah, because I get mad that I haven't made that book or didn't publish it. Exactly. Or like I have to so like, I'm not yeah. totally off base here. Well, no, input and anger, of course not. It's, it's like the, <laughs> it's like my defining characteristic. So, question um, for yeah. you: Do you read? And or pay attention to and or buy books because of blurbs? You know, I think at this point the answer is like with regard to like a select few names, probably yes. Like there are like – I can think of like four or five people where if I saw that they give a comment, I would at least give – Not Joyce Carol Oates? Mm, probably not. <laughs> um, but like there's like a few people where if like they said something really good about a book, I'd be like, okay, I'm going to at least like – pick it up in the store and look at it, you know? Do you, um, do you know what gets me to buy books more than what, blurb on what? a book? Is people talking about it more than a couple of times on Twitter. Word of mouth. Totally yeah. word of mouth. Yeah. But it's not like word of mouth that's like printed. It's like yeah. it's kind. it feels more organic that way. Right. And I think maybe because we're in the age of Goodreads yeah. or, you know, we're in, the, we're in the age of social media mm-hmm. and Instagram where you can just be like, I'm reading this. It's so good. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know. Totally. I don't know. I would like to close this section by by leaving you with a quote from our dear Gary Steingart. <laughs> Thank you, Gary. Uh, so when asked why he keeps cranking blurbs out, like why does he keep blurbing? Mm-hmm. Like are they important, et cetera? Uh, he is kind of 
rhetorically like talking, asking a question to himself. And he says, why does this man blurb so much? I don't know. It's not a tax deduction. (laughs) (laughs) And here's my thought with that. Gary, for somebody who blurbs like a hundred books a year or something, not, not maybe that many, but like a lot of books a year, Mm -hmm. that is a terrible blurb for blurbing. It is. And also I think he should get a tax deduction. I, I do too. Yeah. Blurb print br- print run. It's a tax <laughs> yeah, Gary, deduction. Gary, blurb us. We should get Gary to blurb us. That's our new plan. Guys, everybody, he's online. Like you can Is find he? him. Yeah. No, yes. he, um get it. Let's go get Gary to uh blurb us. That's our new that's our new trick. Yeah. Um all right, I'm on it. Wonderful. I'm gonna start tweeting at him from our stupid bird account. <laughs> yeah. Stephen King's never gonna <laughs> yeah. respond. Um and anyway, no, I I'm never giving up on Stephen King. You'll never make me. <laughs> um he's coming on the show at some Stephen point. Stephen King. It's not a tax deduction. I can't, I can't promise that Stephen King is going to appear on Front Run, but I can promise that I'm never going to quit adding him. That's so, lovely. Yeah. That's lovely. Uh, should we get to the right tip? We should. Okay. So um, this week, it's more of a short little discussion we want to have. There was an article in The Millions um, this week, and it was called, Don't Talk About Your Book Until It's Published. And the basic idea here was that, um, and it's something we've talked about on this show before is that publishing and writing are two very, very separate things and they involve very, very separate discussions, right? The publishing discussion, you know, all this stuff that, you know, book Twitter sort of hinges on, um, none of it is really, it's not really writing based. It's more like query based. It's more, um, you know, how to, how to publish and not necessarily how to write. Right. And so this guy's main point is that, um, until your book is done and you're ready to actually start talking about publication, you shouldn't talk about it because you'll sap yourself of your own energy because you'll take the creative life out of your work and your writing by discussing your writing in terms that aren't creative or, you know, full of life. <laughs> because as I think we can all agree, this is not necessarily the most creative conversation that happens. If around. you spend too much time talking about it and promising it and all of that, then right. – you might kill it. You might get sick of the idea. Right. Is that that's yeah. kind of yeah. Or in that, feedback. like, it's just it can kind of wear you out, and suddenly it's an idea that people are weighing in on. You know, like it's something that can, you know, it can get away from you. You know, and like and I and it know, might also never be published. <laughs> exactly. If like you tell people all about it. Well, it's just like there's a lot of reasons one could argue to not talk about your book, but I think that there's a um, I think that that distinction also works the other way too, and this is kind of where I think the tip is. Um, I think that it's probably good to not discuss your books like publication or, you know, publication chances and pitching and all this, all this stuff that I think we would all agree isn't necessarily um, very like helpful to you, the creative thinker. I can see why you would argue, let's not talk about that stuff. But I do think that it's really helpful to talk about your book to other people in writing because at least for me, like, um, and I am no. You've never said anything to me yeah, about yeah, your book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I've like read. I don't count. One... <laughs> um, I will say that like talking about your work, it can it, you know it can give you energy. You know, it's something to kind of remember that you um, that you really like it. You know, if you just like let yourself be excited about the stuff you're working on to somebody else and like have them be excited with you. I don't know. Like sometimes you need those bits of enthusiasm. And so when I read this, I was like. No, 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 no. Writers don't have to just like sit in silence as they work on, you know, their novels until it's like finally ready to query. Like I think that the writing and we, um, you know, one thing I've argued before on this show is that I wish more online book conversation was like this. 
I think writers should constantly be talking to each other about their work. I just wish that they were actually talking about the work mm-hmm. as opposed to the publication stuff. So I think that this guy is is right. It's just I think there's a certain kind of book conversation that really can, you know, give you you know, can give you energy and help you get to that through that next chapter and help you get to the end and then having to start over and do revisions, you know, like those kind of energetic conversations with some someone else I think are really useful. So I guess that's my only like half retort to this piece because I do, I do think it's a good one um, and we'll, we'll link it out. But um, I would say don't talk about your books like <laughs> – um, More than you feel like you need the to. The mechanics of your book's pitch like – yeah. In a way, but even then, like you wanted, to, you, it's good to like talk about the pitch with, with you know, other people writers. you're close with. But it's like, um, with any topic of conversation, online can beat it to the ground, you know, and being careful with that and selective with that can be really helpful as long as you don't like overextend yourself. And so I would say definitely talk about your book before it's published, but just do it in a way that makes sh- that you def- you feel you're getting energy from and not as like giving yourself away and dissipating your idea until it's something you're not even excited about anymore. Yeah, definitely don't like give away your plot twist. Um, but like <laughs> I think it also what people feel comfortable talking about depends on what stage they're at and kind of like how sure they are that it's going to be published and kind of like what works for them in their process. Like I know for a fact, Eric, even though I don't know – pretty much anything about your book yeah. is that you like to be shamed into writing. <laughs> this is the second thing this episode where you have discussed with me what was the first thing? Impotent anger. And now I <laughs> You had me put on my calendar the day that you were gonna finish it. Oh, book. that was true. That was just like trying to get a deadline. So I guess that yeah, was yeah. that was a good Like exa- you had me yeah, yeah, yeah. to like bug you about the deadline. But yeah. also, you know, like I feel like this morning you said I wrote for three hours this morning. Like I want to sell it. You wanted to celebrate right, right, right. that. that with so me. that was that was kind of an exa- yeah. No, that was um, trying to you know incorporate another person into your writing in a way that actually either made you feel accountable or made you feel energized or you know what. But um, so I think the pub tip there, at least on yeah, my side of yeah. the aisle, is figure out what kind of talking works for you, and that level of talking might change also like you know what the hell do i know i mean this is <laughs> in terms of right i'm doing this for the first time with all the rest of you guys you know so um i guess that's that's the way i think about it from a writer perspective as an agent perspective if i were like advising one of my authors i would definitely say like be selective but talk about it with somebody with someone yeah. you trust that's why you have like beta readers you and want stuff. people it's like a to like circle. know at least a little yeah. bit about it before yeah. the book sells because then when the book sells, you're going to have a group that's already super excited for you and they're already like thrilled about this idea. And then you can go get them all to blurb it. Boom. Yeah. So Full circle. Okay, so the first, the next right tip is to get really famous writer friends. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway. Thank you so much for joining this, our um, kind of silly, goofy, me slightly insulting Eric. Impotently kind of. rageful. <laughs> That's how I would describe episode this episode. <laughs> <print> run. <laughs> Remember, our first pages show comes out June 22nd. That is this Thursday. Our query show and our writing by reading is already out. You can listen to all of those on patreon.com slash print run. Send us your query and first pages at printrunpodcast at gmail.com. And we will see you next week. 